All, all of you know one of Tolstoy's most famous opening lines, all happy families are alike, unhappy families are, are unhappy each in their own way. And uh, I'm going to tell a story about three unhappy families of reactors. And I'll try to keep it light and not uh, too uh, technical today. First, I want to just say a little bit about why am I here sort of thing. When, when I uh, graduated way back in the dark ages from high school, like some of you here, I went to uh, school at uh, North Carolina State. They had the first privately owned reactor in the world at the time, in the country anyway. It was R1. It was a little tiny water boiler reactor. And it had been built by a couple of people from Oak Ridge who went to University of went back to North Carolina State College and started a nuclear engineering department. So I, I entered this nuclear field right from the beginning. I worked for DuPont as a reactor physicist for a while, and then I joined the regulatory staff of the AEC and then the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. And for those of you who don't know anything about the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, it's an independent safety agency. It's the same status as, say, FAA for airplanes and and FDA for uh, drugs and medicine and that sort of thing. So we were not a promoter. Uh, we were a regulator. We issued the rules. We inspected. And I thought I'd tell you a little bit today about the three accidents that I have been uh, involved in following after the fact. It would be Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, and Fukushima. At the time of the Three Mile Island accident in Harrisburg, near Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, I was director of the Office of Reactor Regulation. And uh, that, that day in, in March when the accident happened, I was uh, uh, preparing to leave town. I got a call a Friday, two days after the accident, from my uh, boss, who was presidential appointee by President Carter, that President Carter wanted more management up at the island. And my boss said, uh, Harold, you, you need to get up to the site and try to bring some management attention to this issue. At the time, there were no NRC representatives at any power plant in the country. It hadn't been thought to be necessary back in those, those days. Now we have at least two inspectors at every plant. I arrived there on Friday, uh, and a helicopter had been sent by the White House over to Bethesda Naval Hospital uh, to pick me up. I went up with 12 of my senior staff members and uh, landed in a cornfield across from the plant. There was no, uh, no office building that I could meet, so we, uh, we arranged to meet in the lady's house right across from the plant. Uh, her husband was an employee of the power company, and I think that's where I had the phone call from the White House saying that they wanted a report, and I had to tell the operator that I just arrived. I called back later after I had a chance to go in the control room, and uh, we met with the people who were already at the site, got debriefed, and then went. I went over to the plant and spent some time in the control room. We made assignments so that the licensee, Metropolitan Edison, would make no changes in the plant without getting our concurrence. So we went to coverage 24-7, around the clock, and we had people in the control room for all the time after that, and then also studying what might happen tomorrow sort of thing. Uh, after that period, I called the White House. Telephone communication was very difficult. You've got to remember back in those days there were no cell phones, no uh, personal computers. 
we had to rely on the Mother Bell for communication, and everyone in Pennsylvania by this time had picked up the phone and discovered that the line was dead throughout the state. So getting through anyone was difficult. <clears throat> but I did reach the president, as, and uh, I remember a few things he told me uh, and the, that have stuck with me all these 30-some years since. One, one uh, was that he wanted to be kept fully informed. I later found out from his, his office that fully informed meant that he wanted a phone call at quarter to eight every morning and quarter to four every afternoon. So I called him twice a day, if, uh, every day for the next three weeks, and I debriefed him uh, on what was going on. And I think it shows an unusual uh, amount of presidential involvement. And I haven't seen that out of any president since then who wanted to be personally involved and accountable for uh, what was going on. The second thing he told me was equally important and I think is remarkable looking back at it. He said all the resources of the federal government will be made available to bring this to a safe conclusion. Well, that's quite a uh, delegation, you know, in retrospect. At the time, I was so busy it didn't, you know, it didn't. I assume that's just the way things worked at the president's level. So I never had to sign a piece of paper. I never signed a form, but I got unparalleled cooperation from the federal government. There was no bureaucracy. Uh, president Carter made sure that uh, there was no roadblocks to getting anything done. So anything we wanted uh, that the feds had, we had access to. And it was just remarkable the degree of uh, federal cooperation that existed. Just to give you a, a few examples, we wanted uh, lead bricks. We needed more shielding around some components, and I found out there was a lead brick repository in Pennsylvania. The feds have all these strange things they, you know, most people never need, and uh, we needed 100 tons of lead bricks by morning. And when we called the, uh, the repository, they said, well, you've got to fill out form A, B, C, D, E, you know, F, and it takes about three weeks or something. We said, we know, we can't wait. If you've got uh, any problems with this, call this number that the White House provided. So uh, it was a magic number. So anyone who had any, any doubts about their authority would just call the White House Situation Room and have their action approved. So for uh, three weeks, we, we really were able to call on the military, the national labs, uh, FAA, anything that... Uh, uh, was important safety to get done. And the third thing, he said, work closely with Governor Thornburg. I, uh, I briefed Governor Thornburg the first night I was there. I told him that I didn't think there was a need for an evacuation at the moment. Things were stable. The releases seemed to be largely confined to within the plant. And I outlined what I was doing and how we had people uh, watching the licensee uh, at every important step. And he seemed satisfied with that, and he, uh, he held a press conference about 11.30 Friday night and told uh, the, the people of his opinion that no panic was recalled for, no evacuation. And then he stepped aside and said, and Harold Denton will you know, answer your questions. There had been no indication in all my communication that you know, I was to do anything but uh, just provide uh, technical input to decision makers like Thornburg. Well, that, as you would guess, questions went on until midnight or so. Each of the 12 people that I had taken up also decided they needed help, so they called more of their staff up, and we were only two, two hours from Washington. So by Saturday sometime, I think we had 75 members of the NRC staff at the site. And uh, so we, when we talk about 
my briefings, it really wasn't just me. I was briefing the results of all 75 of these members who were doing their thing between chemical engineering and radiological monitoring and health effects. And we'd pull it all together, and I'd get it together in time to brief the president, call my own boss, the NRC, brief Governor Thornburg, and, and uh, debrief the president at the same time. So I stayed there for, for three weeks. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit about the, what happened at the, from the accident. There have been epidemiological studies around the plant for 20 years following the, the accident. Uh, they've been unable to measure any health effects, which I'm not surprised at because very little radiation got out. I had a couple of uh, exciting moments during that whole time. One was when I took the president through the control room. He, I got a call at midnight, I think it was Saturday night, saying, was it safe for the president to come up? I said, yes, it was. I'd been in the control room. I knew the radiation levels were, were low and, and uh, unmeasurable, basically. So when, when he arrived, we got on the school bus there that, that the utility provided, put on some yellow booties because there was some water around in the plant. We didn't want to get the president's party's shoes wet with possibly contaminated water. And went in the control room and pointed out the important uh, indications about the status of the plant. He'd been given uh, by the company uh, self-reading pocket dosimeters. I had my own dosimeters that were given by the NRC, and Governor Thornburg was wearing his own dosimeters, too, that were provided by the state of Pennsylvania. So we get out of the tour, start to leave the plant, get out of the bus. The president holds up his self-reading dosimeter, which is like a fountain pen. And it tells you how much radiation that fountain pen dosimeter has been has received. It was reading quite high, in fact, surprisingly high, 85 milliram. So I said, oh, my God, have I taken the president through something and gotten him irradiated? And not only that, I've taken his wife through <laughs> the same thing. Well, I read mine. It was reading zero. Uh, Mrs. Carter read hers. It was reading high, like 75, 85 milliram also. Governor Thornburg reads his dosimeter. It's reading zero. Well, it turned out that the company had been given out non-recharged dosimeters. They weren't reset to zero when they were turned in the last time. So if the dosimeter was turned in reading 85, they just gave it back to, to the next person that got it and read 85 going out. And then when it got turned in again, they subtracted the difference. They thought that was fine. You know, and technically maybe it is, but you don't give the presidential party non-recharged non dosimeters. And I think the president's confidence in the, in the company dropped. A, a lot during that. Well, you can ask, why did we learn from TMI? And I, I don't want to dwell on TMI to the other accidents, but uh, there were five major investigations done from TMI. The president appointed a presidential commission. It uh, produced a report in about six months. We made, uh, I worked uh, being at the NRC, we made major changes then and lots of things, mainly in the human factor sign. I'll give you one, one example. Before TMI, there were only four reactor simulators in the country, and they were at the manufacturer's site. So they were in Pittsburgh and San Jose and Lynchburg, Virginia, that sort of thing. One of the first things we did was require full-scope, full-size simulators at every plant so that the operators could be trained using, a, just like pilots do, on a control room that looks like the real control room and has the computer codes all driven so it will respond the same way a, a reactor would. And that was one of the, 
largest changes was in the qualifications of the operators, the things they had to be trained on, and their ability to properly interpret the signals that they were, they were getting at the time. Another very important change was President Carter created FEMA uh, about two months after the accident, because up to that time there was no equal federal agency for emergency preparedness and emergency planning. And now FEMA conducts preparedness drills around every power plant every two years. And the local governments play, the county governments, the state governments, the federal government, and the utility walk through a scenario. And these are major drills involving maybe 40 or 50 people, and they're graded, and uh, any deficiencies are, are corrected and so forth. And all this is public. If you if you wanted to see one about what's more, I'm sure you could go to FEMA's website and pull it out of the archives, for example. So a lot of other changes were made. And if you want to talk about TMI, I could fill the afternoon. But let's go to the next one, Chernobyl. Chernobyl happened in 86 in the Ukraine. That was a big Russian accident that you may remember. They had four units there. Their reactors at the time were charcoal-moderated. That means a big block of charcoal. Pressure tubes went through this charcoal, and that's where the water was heated up. They didn't have a big reactor vessel like most U.S. plants do, all U.S. plants do. They were running a test, and they'd put this reactor in a very unstable position, and at about 10 minutes past midnight, a new crew on the job, they decided they just had to run this test and get it out of the way, and they initiated the test. When that happened, the, uh, the, the reactor instability, which was technically, I'd call it a positive temperature coefficient. That means that when it heats up, the very fact of heating up puts more reactivity in the core and it heats up even faster and faster and faster. So the power in the, in the plant went from, say, 3,000 megawatts to 30,000 megawatts in just a few seconds. That was enough to turn all the water in the tubes, the steam. It blew the top off the reactor, blew the top off the little building that they were in. They didn't have containments. All the charcoal caught on fire and it uh, burned for, for days and weeks after that. And those of you who followed it at the time may remember almost all the volatile materials in Chernobyl got out, all the noble gases, the cesiums, the strontiums, uh, iodine-181, and so forth. That was far different than TMI, where almost nothing got out of the plant. Uh, I was as shocked as anyone when um, Fukushima happened. I'd been to several similar Japanese plants. Fukushima has four reactors on that coast. Uh, they are basically copies of a GE design that's operated by TVA here and uh, close by. The, an earthquake occurred that was a magnitude 9. Uh, the plants were designed for a magnitude 8, and they had uh, tsunami walls, some protection for maybe 15 feet of tsunamis, which at the time they built the plants, they thought would would be a maximum sort of tsunami. Well, it turned out that the earthquake which did occur was a magnitude 9. Every time you go up one level in magnitude, that's really a factor of 10 in the energy release. So that, that released a lot of energy. The tsunami came in at somewhere between 30 and 40 feet high at that site, and neither the earthquake nor the tsunami damaged the reactor directly. I guess I should walk you through the sequence a little bit. But when the earthquake occurred at Fukushima, the plants uh, all shut down normally. All the control rods went in. All the emergency generators started that are there for backup, as they should. 
they lost connection with the grid because the earthquake had knocked down all the transmission lines and so forth. So the plant was relying on its emergency generators for AC power. Well, about 30 minutes after that, the tsunami rolls in and knocked out every one of the eight diesel generators that were on the site and were operating properly. And I, I still don't know exactly why the tsunami disabled them all, whether it swept the fuel tanks off their moorings or got water in switchgear rooms, but they all they lost the ability to, to uh, have any AC power. Well, all reactors are equipped with backup batteries for such a situation. And these are submarine-type batteries, and they have a supply for maybe four to eight hours that they can run with DC power. The idea behind those rules being they should run long enough that you could get assistance brought to the plant, and you could hook up some mobile electrical generator, perhaps, or power would be restored. Well, in this case, with the earthquake ruining the infrastructure around the plant, the roads were out, lines were down, telephone lines were down, trains were down. They were unable to do anything but sit there and let the batteries run dry, and then they had no control of the plant. So every control room went dark, no pumps, switches, valves, and the reactors began to overheat like coffee pots on a stove if you don't turn the heat off. And it eventually uh, uncovered the core, so the three plants that were uh, in operation at the time all had partial meltdowns, as TMI did. Uh, about half the core TMI melted. But just because there's a meltdown, it doesn't mean that there's vast public consequences automatically. At TMI, even though it melted down, all the activity stayed in that strong containment. But uh, at Fukushima, they had the meltdown. The pressure was building. They vented the uh, the pressure to the suppression pools that these plants have while the temperature started going up in the suppression pools. These had to be vented also to stay within limits, so they started releasing noble gases and uh, hydrogen that came about from the meltdown, iodines and other things to the atmosphere. They had several explosions from the hydrogen, uh, and even today the water levels in Fukushima are so hot and so radioactive they have difficulty getting access to the spaces that are there. So what, what lesson do we take about these three unhappy families then? The one is severe accidents can happen. We shouldn't pretend that they can't happen. People thought when they designed these plants, they were so unlikely that you just could not have it. The one in Japan, I would really classify as a black swan event. You know, that's something that the statisticians use. That it just In England, they all thought all swans were white. Then when they went to Australia, they discovered they're actually black swans, too. And that's, that's the story about that uh, tsunami, that you really can have giant tsunamis, and they just didn't believe it. But accidents can happen at reactors. Strong containments can actually keep the public health consequences to a minimal, as they happen at TMI. Chernobyl didn't have a containment. That's why it scattered radiation all over the region and was easily detectable here in Oak Ridge and in Harrisburg also. Fukushima had containment, but it had not really been tested under these conditions, and they didn't make the vital emergency power generators uh, immune to whatever water level came by. It would have been easy to spend the money at the beginning and make sure that no matter what the storm was, it wouldn't be affected. So importance of containment, importance of emergency planning, importance of thinking that the impossible may actually occur, and uh, that's what's going on in the U.S. power companies now. Is every one of them 
I'm sure, are looking, uh, putting their operators in the control room mock-ups that they have, these simulators, and having walking through a loss of AC power to see what happens in their own plants and making arrangements to uh, cope with that sort of thing. The, the ones that, uh, one of the most popular options for U.S. plants I hear is, is going ahead and purchasing and repositioning mobile electric generators at some safe place and making arrangements with these heavy lift helicopter firms so that within the time of provided by the batteries in the plant, they can bring them in and have free thought how you would plug them together and use it to keep uh, the plant machinery all running. Maybe this is a good place to stop and uh, take questions about these these three accidents. I hope it's the last. Nobody can guarantee it will be. And uh, the key is to learn from each one. One thing I think we do need from Japan, and it's been difficult getting information all the time from Japan, is a really thorough investigation of what happened and exactly what failed. And then uh, that can be a basis for improving U.S. technology. It's sure to depress public opinion about uh, about nuclear power in general. Uh, there are already some rumblings about plants that might have been considered or being dropped. The only really active plant I know at the moment that's being built is a new design at uh, Waynesville, Georgia. It's called an AP-1000. It's one that has, uh, it can go three days without any AC power. It had been designed that way before Fukushima. So if you're looking for a good plant to put in your backyard, one that will last for three days uh, would be a good one to pick. Questions? I have one. Is there any number of accidents like this that would convince you that this is, in fact, an inherently unsafe method of uh, commercial energy generation? Uh, I, don't, I don't have a, a number. I look at what happened, and is it fixable? I don't expect the technology to be perfect, but I do expect it to be something we can live with that's adequately safe. And certainly TMI, even though it was an accident, you don't find it affecting the health and the, of the public there. So just because it occurred, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't throw it out. I think most U.S. Uh, public opinion when Chernobyl happened is that's not one to count because it happened in the Soviet Union at the time, and they, everyone knew they didn't build safe reactors, da, da, da. The one in Fukushima is much more troubling, and I think that's why we have to find out what really went wrong. But it really started by this uh, magnitude 9 earthquake, saying everyone makes their own decisions about it what sort of electricity generation you want, you know, wind, solar, coal, natural gas, nuclear. The one attribute of nuclear is it doesn't produce any carbon dioxide. And uh, I tell my grandchildren when they ask me these kind of questions, the energy that's in uranium is going to be there during their lifetime, and reactors should get better and better, and if we're looking for a way to generate it, Rather than burning oil or coal, that's an option. And I'd like to see it preserved as an option. Of course, the plant should be safe. No argument about that. Over here. Well, lots of press lately about Vermont Yankee. Would you comment on the similarities of the, the Vermont plant versus the Japanese plant? And also, uh, about a year ago, their legislature, I think by 26 to 4, passed a resolution to try to close it, and the governor's trying to close it. And I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't think they had the authority to do anything to a nuclear plant. Would you comment on that? 
Well, I, I'll leave that to the courts. I think it's in the court now. The uh, battle as to whether Vermont can override, take an action which overrides a federal license or not, and that's that's probably uh, too remote from my field to speculate on. GE invented the boiler design, and so all, all boiler designs in the world came out of GE, and they didn't want to build ones like Westinghouse. You know, it's like Ford and Chevrolet. So they came up with their own design, and at the time it was introduced, it was thought to have some positive safety features, where GE plants have only half the pressure uh, and to operate as big Westinghouse plants did. And they thought suppression pools would also scrub any activity that came out. So there are a number of arguments that GE advanced, and the probabilistic risk assessments showed it was just as good as a Westinghouse plant. There were four reactor vendors when I joined the AEC. It was Westinghouse, GE, Combustion, and B&W. And there were maybe eight or ten architect engineers, Sergeant Lundy, Bechtel. And in the U.S. system of capitalism, Anybody was free to propose any plant that they wanted to uh, and see if they could get it approved. And I often thought that the choice of the plant was often made on the golf course by the uh, president of the utility playing with the provider of the power plant and with the assumption that if the NRC approved it, it was automatically safe. Also, there's been a, a drop in the number of technical people in the top of power companies. It used to be people working in the as presidents of power companies around the country were people who came out of electrical engineering schools, appreciated engineering. It's been taken over more by finance today, and cost-cutting has become more and more important. So it's a little harder to keep the technical accuracy straight. The NRC does have inspectors at every plant, which it didn't have before TMI. That helps a lot. And let me mention something else that you, you may not be aware of. During TMI, the only source of getting information was in the control room. So everybody had to crowd in the control rooms to read a gauge. Today, with computers and networks, the data from the control room is instantly displayed in the five regional offices of the NRC by, by computer. And you can just put in, I want to see what's in Millstone or Browns Ferry or Turkey Point, and you'll see the parameters uh, live, real time. And uh, so the amount of information now available to people to cope with accidents is just markedly different. Than, than it was. And it's, it's always a, a problem. The, the, the Congress passed the Atomic Energy Act, which says you, you'll only issue a license if you can provide reasonable assurance of protection of public health and safety. People have their differing definitions of reasonable assurance. It's often argued and litigated when people oppose a plant that's being proposed. It's a decision made in the administrative legal process, just like issuing say, a driver's license, although it's far more complicated than uh, those kind of things. I think what's happening is as, as technical reviewers push harder on the design, it's not only got to meet the present standards of the government, it's got to look at going beyond how will it do in the really severe accidents. And I bet the NRC investigation that will be completed in about three months or six months will urge and require that all utilities look beyond the normal kind of accidents that plants are designed for, but look at what might happen in the, in the farthest reaches of your imagination. Did you say what the exact cause of the Three Mile Island incident was? It was, it was uh, started with an equipment failure, a valve stuck open, and then uh, the re operators weren't 
properly trained to interpret what, what did happen. And among the things that went wrong on the operator training line, they turned off the very systems that were pumping uh, high-pressure water into the system to keep the core covered because they misinterpreted some signals that they were getting. So there were eight or ten things in a row. There was no one cause, per se, but they were all human factor-related or minor equipment failures or should have been minor equipment failures. So that was, that was equipment and people. Chernobyl was, was a poor core design, unstable core. And then for Japan, I'd, I'd say the, the, the basic cause would have to be the, the tsunami that wiped out the off-site power. Um, there's, a, there's a fairly hefty drumbeat in our area from TVA and from Oak Ridge community to bring in small modular reactors, SMRs, and I think they have not been licensed anywhere to this point in time. Uh, it looks like there's a very good uh, possibility that will come here. They have to be built somewhere else and brought in. What do you know about them, and do you think that's sort of the next future of nuclear reactors? I'm all for a concept of modular built reactors. I think it would increase the quality of the work that to be done in a factory if it can be small and transported by train somewhere. And I don't know the details of what is planned for the uh, former Clitch River site here. But, you know, just as a concept, it, it makes an awful lot of sense because up to now, they're all built in the field and you have to train all the welders and technicians and pipe fitters to, to do a high-quality job. I think it's a, it's a bit like arguing factory-built homes or versus homes site-built. But uh, one, one of the problems with today's generation of plants, there are 104 plants in the country, there are 66 different kinds of plants out there, actually. So it gives us regulators nightmares trying to, to regulate such a diverse field. I'd love to regulate the French industry, where you just got one plant, and you can make one change, and it will be implemented throughout. Usually small plants are not as economical as large plants, and that's what drives companies to buy very large plants. But uh, for places that don't, don't need that much power, I think they could be very valuable. And one other thing I should mention is spent fuel storage. The uh, Fukushima plant uh, did let some, apparently, fuel storage pools dry out because they had no pump power. And those elements also tend to overheat and could undergo uh, melting or cladding failure and release activity. The fuel storage pools in GE reactor is about 140 feet off the ground, so they're pretty high, and they're in the same building as the reactor. If you look at a typical PWR, the fuel pool is a different building, and it's not connected to the reactor building. So I think it'd be easier to keep the fuel safe in a separate building than have it subjected to whatever problems the reactor may be experiencing, such as hydrogen production. I have opinions on which are safe, but I, I, I don't want to pick one winner over another one. There might not be another winner or loser in the U.S., but I think the basic reason for, for nuclear is because it is such an uh, energetic source. And uh, when I went on it, it was an exciting feel. Everybody wanted to be a member of that community. I haven't heard a whole lot of talk lately about transportation and long-term storage of nuclear waste. And as, assuming that there are people or life on this earth in, you know, 100,000 years from now, I mean, what is the best way to, to store nuclear waste safely for lo the long term? 
Well, I, I've, uh, I've been in a tunnel right next to where Yucca Mountain Tunnel would be, and I think it's uh, an ideal place to put waste. It may not be the very best spot in the U.S. There might be better spots than Nevada, but Nevada has fought Yucca Mountain tooth and nail since it was selected. But if you look at the, the scientific measures of where you put waste, you'd want to put it in a dry place. You don't want to put it in a wet place. You don't want it on the the ocean in California or the ocean on the coast. Uh, Yucca Mountain is a natural basin, so any water that gets there doesn't drain out, it just stays there. If you fly over it, you can see the, the disturbed sand where uh, General Patton trained tanks corps for World War II out there, still there, just indicating how dry it is. So the geologists originally picked Yucca Mountain to be 2,000 feet below the ground level and 2,000 feet above the water table. And there's not a soul you see in, in driving from Las Vegas to Yucca Mountain. There's nobody out there. I mean, it's just in this public safety. So I think trying to meet a 10,000-year standard uh, as to what the dose would be is, is an impossible task. You can't predict what is going to happen. We can hardly predict, you know, a few years in the future. So it is certainly safer to be out there in a, in a cave in Nevada than it is to be stored around the reactors. Now, the reactor has put it in concrete uh, canisters and keeps storing it. But I think the, I don't think Nevada has done the nation any service by forcing it to stay on the site and, and carrying on the way they had. I mean, it was, it, was a, it, was, it was picked based on technology and science, and they have managed to, to prevent it. And there's rumors, and I don't want to throw out an argument that may not be true, but I always heard that Nevada tends to not like nuclear waste because they don't think the gamblers will come to Las Vegas if it has nuclear fuel stored there. So what the heck. Well, stay tuned for more developments. Uh, I, I would not hesitate to live next door to a nuclear power plant myself. It's tightly regulated. It's, uh, it's all open, transparent. You can get the information from the public document room. You have all sorts of legal rights to protest if you don't like what's going on. And uh, so thank you for coming today. Thank you for listening to Brown Bag Green Book, a lunchtime series of book discussions about environmental sustainability. To hear other podcasts, please visit www.knoxlib.com. Dot O-R-G.